Hello, Wild Wanders, and welcome to our wicked window of the internet. Won't you pour yourself a cup of your best tea, light a candle to stave away the darkness, and cozy up as we tell you a story? Wittershins is a weekly podcast where we will dive into dusty bookshelves and winding darkened pathways looking to stories from folklore, fairy tales, mythology, legend, and beyond. We are accompanied by our trusted bard and guitarist Joe Saborin, who will be live composing for us as our characters find their way out of the thickets and snarls of their tales. My name is Ashley Nunez, and I will be your narrator to peer over bough and branch, following our heroes and foes into far distant lands, both familiar and unknown. Let us begin once upon a time. Body Snatcher by Robert Louis Stevenson. Every night in the year, four of us sat in the small parlor of George Debenham, the undertaker, and the landlord, and Fetz, and myself. Sometimes there would be more, but blow high, blow low, come rain or snow or frost, we four would be each planted in his own particular armchair. Fetz was an old drunken Scotchman, a man of education, obviously, and a man of some property, since he lived in idleness. He had come to Debenham years ago while still young, by a mere continuance of living, had grown to be an adopted townsman. Blue camlet cloak was a local antiquity like the church spire, his place in the parlor at the George, his absence from church, his old, crapulous, disreputable, radical opinions, and some fleeting infidelities, which he would now and again set forth and emphasize with tottering slaps upon the table. He drank rum, five glasses regularly, every evening. And for the greater portion of his nightly visit to the George, sat with his glass in his right hand, in a state of melancholy, alcoholic saturation. We call him the doctor, for he was supposed to have some special knowledge of medicine, and had been known, upon a pinch, to set a fracture, reduce a dislocation, but beyond these slight particulars, we had no knowledge of his character and antecedents. One dark winter night, it had struck nine some time before the landlord joined us, and there was a sick man in the George, a great neighboring proprietor, suddenly struck down with apoplexy on his way to Parliament, and the great man's still greater London doctor had been telegraphed to his bedside. It was the first time that such a thing had happened in Debenham, for the railway was but newly open, and we were all proportionately moved by the occurrence. "'He's come,' said the landlord, after he had filled and lighted his pipe. "'He?' said I. "'Who, not the doctor?' "'Himself,' replied our host. "'What is his name?' "'Dr. McFarlane,' said the landlord. Fetz was far through his third tumbler, stupidly fuddled, now nodding over, now staring mazily around him, but at the last word he seemed to awaken repeated the name McFarlane twice, quietly enough the first time, but with sudden emotion at the second. Yes, said the landlord, that's his name, Dr. Wolf McFarlane. Fetz became instantly sober, his eyes awoke, his voice became clear and loud and steady, his language forcible and earnest. We were all startled by the transformation as if a man had risen from the dead. I beg your pardon, he said. I am afraid I have not been paying much attention to your talk. Who is Wolf McFarlane? And then when he had heard the landlord out, it, can, it cannot be. It cannot be, he added. And yet I, I like well to see him face to face. Do you know him, doctor? asked the undertaker with a gasp. God forbid, was the reply. And yet the name is a strange one. It were too much to fancy to. Tell me, landlord... 
Is he old? Well, said the host, he's not a young man, to be sure, and his hair is white, but he looks younger than you. He is older, though. Years older. But, slap upon the table, it is the rum you see in my face, rum and sin. This man, perhaps, may have an easy conscience and a good digestion. Conscience? Hear me speak, you would think I was some good old decent Christian, would you not? But no, not I. I never canted. Voltaire might have canted if he'd stood in my shoes, but the brain, he said with the rattling Philip on his bald head, the brains were clear and active, and I saw, and I made no deductions. If you know this doctor, I ventured to remark after a somewhat awful pause, I should gather that you do not share the landlord's good opinion. Fetz paid no regard to me. Yes, he said with a sudden decision, I must see him face to face. There was another pause, and then a door was closed rather sharply on the first floor, and a step was heard upon the stair. That's the doctor, cried the landlord. Look sharp, and you can catch him. It was but two steps from the small parlor to the door of the old George Inn. The wide oak staircase landed almost in the street. There was room for a turkey rug and nothing more between the threshold and the last round of the descent. But this little space was every evening brilliantly lit up, not only by the light upon the stair and the great signal lamp below the sign, but by the warm radiance of the barroom window. The George thus brightly advertised itself to the passers-by in the cold street. Fetz walked steadily to the spot, and we, who were hanging behind, beheld the two men meet, as one of them had phrased it, face to face. Dr. McFarlane was alert and vigorous, his white hair set off his pale and placid, although energetic countenance. He was richly dressed in the finest of broadcloth and the whitest of linen, with a great gold watch chain and studs and spectacles of the same precious material. He wore a broad folded tie, white and speckled with lilac, and he carried on his arm a comfortable driving coat of fur. There was no doubt but he became his years breathing as he did of wealth and consideration, and it was a surprising contrast to see our parlor sought, bald, dirty, pimpled, and robbed in his old camlet cloak, front and at the bottom of the stairs. McFarlane, he said somewhat loudly, more like a herald than a friend. The great doctor pulled up short on the fourth step though the familiarity of the address surprised and somewhat shocked his dignity. Toddy McFarlane, repeated Fetz. The London man almost staggered. He stared for the swiftest of seconds as the man before him glanced behind him with a sort of scare. And then, in a startled whisper, Fetz, he said, you? I, said the other, me. Do you think I was dead, too? You're not so easy, shut out of our acquaintance. Hush, hush, exclaimed the doctor. Hush, this meeting is so unexpected. I can see you are on Manda. I hardly knew you, I confess at first, but I am overjoyed, overjoyed to have this opportunity. For the present it must be, how, how do you do, and goodbye in one, for my fly is waiting and I must not fail the train, but you shall let me see, yes. You shall give me your address, and you can count on early news of me. We must do something for you, Fetz. I fear you are out at elbows, but we must see to that for Auld Lang Syne, as once we sang at suppers. Money, cried Fetz. Money from you. The money that I have from you is lying where I cast it in the rain. Dr. McFarlane had talked himself into some measure of superiority and confidence, but the uncommon energy of this refusal cast him back into his first confusion. A horrible, ugly look came and went across his almost venerable countenance. "'My dear fellow,' he said, "'be as you please. My last thought is to offend you. I would intrude on none. I will leave you my address. However, I do not wish it. I do not wish to know the roof that shelters you,' interrupted the other. "'I heard your name. I feared it might be you. I wish to know if, after all, there was a god. I know now.' There is none. Be gone. 
He stood still in the middle of the rug between the stair and doorway and the great London physician in order to escape. We forced a step to one side. It was plain that he hesitated before the thought of this humiliation. White as he was, there was a dangerous glitter in his spectacles. But while he still paused uncertain, he became aware that the driver of his fly was peering in from the street at this unusual scene and caught a glimpse of the same time of our little body in the parlor huddled to the corner of the bar. The presence of so many witnesses decided him at once to flee. He crouched together, brushing on the wainscot, made a dart like a serpent striking for the door. But his tribulation was not entirely at an end, for even as he was passing, Fetz clutched him by the arm, and these words came out at a whisper, and yet painfully distinct. Have you seen it again? The great rich London doctor cried out aloud with a sharp throttling cry. He dashed his questioner across the open space and with his hand over his head fled out the door like a detected thief. Before it had occurred to one of us to make a movement, the fly was already rattling towards the station. The scene was over like a dream. But the dream had left proofs and traces of its passage. Next day, the servant found the fine gold spectacles broken on the threshold. And that very night, we were all suddenly breathless by the barroom window and Fetz at our side, sober, pale and resolute in look. God protect us, Mr. Fetz, said the landlord, coming first into possession of his customary senses. What in the universe is all this? These are strange things you have been saying. Fetz turned toward us. He looked at us in each in succession in the face. See if you can hold your tongues, said he. That man, McFarlane, is not safe to cross. Those that have done so already have repented it too late. And then, without so much as finishing the third glass, far less waiting for the other two, he bade us goodbye and went forth, under the lamp of the hotel, into the black night. We three turned to our places in the parlor, the big red fire and four clear candles, and as we recapitulated what passed, first chill of our surprise soon changed into the glow of curiosity. We sat late. It was the latest session I've ever known in the old George. Each man before we parted had his theory that he was bound to prove and none of us had any nearer business in this world than to track out the past of our condemned companion and surprise the secret he shared with the great London doctor. It is no great boast but I believe I was better hand at worming out the story than either of my fellows of the George, and perhaps there is now no other man alive who could narrate to you the following foul and unnatural events. In his young days, Fetz studied medicine in the School of Edinburgh. He had talent of a kind, the talent that picks up swiftly what it hears and readily retails it for its own. He worked little at home, but he was civil, attentive, and intelligent in the presence of his masters. They soon picked him out as a lad who listened closely and remembered well. Nay, strange as it seemed to me when I first heard it, he was in those days well-favored and pleased by his exterior. There was at that period a certain extramural teacher of anatomy, whom I shall here designate by the letter K. His name was subsequently too well known. The man who bore it skulked through the streets of Edinburgh in disguise, while the mob that applauded at the execution of Burke called loudly for the blood of his employer. But... Mr. K was then at the top of his vogue. He enjoyed a popularity due partly to his own talent and address, partly to the incapacity of his rival, the university professor. The student, at least, swore by his name, and Fetz believed himself, and was believed by others, to have laid the foundation of success when he acquired the favor of this meteorically famous man, Mr. K was a bon vivant, as well as an accomplished teacher. He liked a silly illusion no less than a careful preparation. 
In both capacities, Fetz enjoyed and deserved his notice, and by the second year of his attendance, he held the half-regular position of second demonstrator or sub-assistant in his class. In this capacity, the charge of the theater and lecture room devolved in particular upon his shoulders. He had to answer for the cleanliness of the premises and the conduct of the other students, and it was a part of his duties to supply, receive, and divide the various subjects. It was with a view to this last, and at that time very delicate, affair that he was lodged by Mr. K in the same wind and at last in the same building with the dissecting rooms. Here, after a night of turbulent pleasures, his hands still tottering, his sight still misty and confused, he would be called out of bed in the black hours before the winter dawn by the unclean and desperate interlopers who supplied the table. He would open the door to these men, since infamous throughout the land, he would help them with their tragic burden, pay them their sordid price, and remain alone when they were gone with the unfriendly relics of humanity. From such a scene, he would return to snatch another hour or two of slumber to repair the abuses of the night and refresh himself for the labors of the day. Few lads could have been more insensible to the impressions of a life thus passed among the ensigns of mortality. His mind was closed against all general considerations. He was incapable of interest in the fate and fortunes of another, the slave of his own desires and low ambitions. Cold light and selfish in the last resort, he had that modicum of prudence miscalled morality which keeps a man from inconvenient drunkenness or punishable theft. He coveted, besides, a measure of consideration from his masters and his fellow pupils, and he had no desire to fail conspicuously in the external parts of life. Thus, he made it his pleasure to gain some distinction in his studies, and day after day rendered unimpeachable eye service to his employer, Mr. K., for his day of work, he indemnified himself by nights of roaring, blackguardly enjoyment, and when that balance had been struck, the organ that he called his conscience declared itself content. The supply of subjects was a continual trouble to him, as well as to his masters. In that large and busy class, the raw material of the anatomist kept perpetually running out, and the business thus rendered necessary was not only unpleasant in itself, but threatened dangerous consequences to all who were concerned. It was the policy of Mr. K to ask no questions in his dealings with the trade. They bring the body, and we pay the price, used to say, dwelling on the alliteration quid pro quo. And again, somewhat profanely. Ask no questions, he would tell his assistants, for conscious sake. There was no understanding that the subjects were provided by the crime of murder. Had that idea been broached to him in words, he would have recoiled in horror, but the lightness of his speech upon so grave a matter was in itself an offense against good manners and a temptation to the men with whom he dealt. Fetz, for instance, had often remarked to himself upon the singular freshness of the bodies. He had been struck again and again by the hangdog, abominable looks, the ruffians who came to him before the dawn and putting things together clearly in his private thoughts, he perhaps attributed a meaning too moral and too categorical to the unguarded counsels of his master. He understood his duty, in short, to have three branches to take what was brought, to pay the price, and to avert the eye from any evidence of crime. One November morning, this policy of silence was put sharply to the test. 
He had been awake all night with a racking toothache, pacing his room like a caged beast or throwing himself in fury on his bed, and had fallen at last into that profound, uneasy slumber that so often follows a night of pain. When he was awakened by the third or fourth angry repetition on the concerted signal, there was a thin, bright moonshine. It was a bitter, cold, windy, and frosty. The town had not yet awakened, but an indefinable stir already preluded the noise and business of the day. The ghosts had come later than usual, and they seemed more than usually eager to be gone. Fetz, sick with sleep, lighted them upstairs. He heard them grumbling Irish voices through dream as they stripped the sack from their sad merchandise. He leaned dozing with his shoulder propped against the wall. He had to shake himself to find the men their money. And as he did so, his eyes lighted on the dead face. He started. He took two steps nearer with a candle raised. God Almighty, he cried. This is Jane Galbraith. The men answered nothing, but they shuffled near the door. I know her, I tell you, he continued. She was alive and hardy yesterday. It's impossible she can be dead. It's impossible. You should have got this body fairly. Sure, sir, you're mistaken entirely, said one of the men. But the other looked Fetz darkly in the eyes and demanded the money on the spot. It was impossible to misconceive the threat or to exaggerate the danger. The lad's heart failed him. He stammered some excuses, counted out the sum, and saw his hateful visitors depart. No sooner were they gone than he hastened to confirm his doubts. By a dozen unquestionable marks, he identified the girl he had jested with the day before. He saw, with horror... Marks upon her body that might well betoken violence. A panic seized him, and he took refuge in his room. There he reflected at length over the discovery that he had made, considered soberly the bearing of Mr. K's instructions and the danger to himself of interfering in so serious a business, and at last, in sore perplexity, determined to wait for the advice of his immediate superior, the class assistant. This was a young doctor, Wolf McFarlane, a high favorite among all the reckless students, clever, dissipate, and unscrupulous to the last degree. He had traveled and studied abroad. His manners were agreeable and a little forward. He was an authority on the stage, skillful on the ice or the links with skate or golf clubs, he dressed with nice audacity, and to put forth the finishing touch upon his glory, he clapped a gig and a strong trotting horse. With Fats, he was on terms of intimacy. Indeed, their relationship positions called for some community of life, and when students were scarce, the pair would drive far into the country, McFarland's gig, visit and desecrate some lonely graveyard and return before dawn with their booty to the door of the dissecting room. On that particular morning, McFarlane arrived somewhat early than his wont. Fetz heard him and met him on the stairs, told him his story, and showed him the cause for alarm. McFarlane examined the marks on her body. Yes, he said with a nod, it looks fishy. "'Well, what should I do?' asked Fetz. "'Do?' replied the other. "'Do you want to do anything? "'Least said, soonest mended, I should say. "'Someone else might recognize her,' objected Fetz. "'She was well known as the Castle Rock.' "'Well, hope not,' said McFarland. "'If anyone does, well, you didn't, don't you see? "'And there's an end. "'The fact is, this has been going on too long.' Stir up the mud and you'll get Kay into the most unholy trouble and you'll be in a shocking box yourself. So will I, if it comes to that. I should like to know how any one of us would look or what devil we should have to say for ourselves if any Christian witness box. For me, you know, there's one thing certain, that practically speaking, all of our subjects have been murdered. McFarlane! 
cried Fetz. Come now, sneered the other, as if you hadn't suspected it yourself. Suspected is one thing, and proof another? Yes, I know, and I'm as sorry as you are that it should have come to this, tapping his body with the cane. The next best thing for me is to not recognize it, he added coolly. I don't. You may, if you please, I don't dictate, but I think a man of the world would do as I do, and I might add, fancy, that is what Kay would look for at our hands. The question is, why did he choose us two for his assistance? And I answer because he didn't want old wives. This was the tone of all others to affect the mind of a lad like Fetz. He agreed to imitate McFarlane. The body of the unfortunate girl was duly dissected, and no one remarked or appeared to recognize her. One afternoon, when his day's work was over, Fetz dropped into a popular tavern and found McFarlane sitting with a stranger. This was a small man, very pale and dark, with cold black eyes. The cut of his features gave a promise of intellect and refinement, which was but feebly realized in his manners, for he proved upon a nearer acquaintance coarse, vulgar, and stupid. He exercised, however, a very remarkable control over McFarlane, issuing orders like the great Bashaw, became inflamed at the last discussion or delay, and commented rudely on the servility with which he was obeyed. This most offensive person took a fancy to Fetz on the spot, plied him with drinks, and honored him with unusual confidences on his past career. If a tenth part of what he confessed were true, he was a very loathsome rogue, and the lad's vanity was tickled by the attention of so experienced a man. "'I'm a pretty bad fellow myself,' the stranger remarked, "'but McFarlane is the boy. "'Toddy McFarlane, I call him. "'Toddy, order yourself another glass. "'Or it might be, "'Toddy, you jump up and shut the door.' "'Toddy hates me,' he said again. "'Oh, yes, Toddy, you do.' "'Don't you call me that confounded name,' growled McFarlane. "'Hear him. "'Did you ever see the lads play knife?' We'd like to do that all over my body, remarked the stranger. We medicals have a better way than that, said Fetz. When we dislike a dead friend of ours, we dissect him. McFarlane looked up sharply as though his jest was scarcely to his mind. The afternoon passed. Gray, for that was the stranger's name, invited Fetz to join them at dinner ordered a feast so sumptuous that the tavern was thrown into commotion, and when all was done, commanded McFarland to settle the bill. It was late before they separated. The man Gray was incapably drunk. McFarland, sobered by his fury, chewed the cud of the money he had been forced to squander and the slights he had been obliged to swallow. Fetz, with various liquors singing in his head, returned home with devious footsteps and a mind entirely in abeyance. Next day, McFarlane was absent from the class. Fett smiled to himself as he imagined him still squirming with the intolerable gray from tavern to tavern. As soon as the hour of liberty had struck, he posted from place to place in quest of his last night's companions. He could find them, however, nowhere, so he returned early to his rooms, went early to bed, and slept the sleep of the just. At four in the morning, he was awakened by the well-known signal. Descending to the door, he was filled with astonishment to find McFarlane with his gig, and in his gig one of those long and ghastly packages with which he was so well acquainted. What? Have you been out alone? How did you manage? But McFarlane silenced him roughly, bidding him turn to his business. When they had got the body upstairs and laid it on the table, McFarlane made it first as if he were going away. Then he paused and seemed to hesitate, and then, You'd better look at the face, he said in tones of some constraint. You had better, he repeated as Fetz only stared at him in wonder. "'But where and how and when did you come by it?' cried the other. "'Look at the face,' was the only answer. 
Fetz was staggered. Strange doubts assailed him. He looked from the young doctor to the body and then back again. At last, with a start, he did as he was bidden. He'd almost expected the sight that met his eyes, and yet the shock was cruel. To see, fixed in the rigidity of death and naked on that coarse layer of sackcloth, the man with whom he had left well-clad and full of meat and sin upon the threshold of a tavern awoke, even in the thoughtless fet, some of the terrors of the conscience. It was a crass to be which he re-echoed in his soul that two whom he had known should have come to lie upon these icy tables. Yet these were only secondary thoughts. His first concern regarded Wolf. Unprepared for a challenge so momentous, he knew not how to look upon his comrade in the face. He durst not meet his eye, and he had neither words nor voice at his command. It was McFarlane himself who made the first advance. He came up quietly behind and laid his hand gently, but firmly on the other shoulder. Richardson, said he, may have the head. Now, Richardson was a student who had long been anxious for that portion of the human subject to dissect. There was no answer, and the murder resumed. Talking of business, you must pay me. Your accounts, you see, must tally. Fats found a voice, the ghost of his own. Pay you? He cried, pay you for that? Why, yes, of course you must. By all means and on every possible account you must, return the other. I dare not give it for nothing. You dare not take it for nothing. It would compromise us both. This is another case, like Jane Gabrace. The more things are wrong, the more we must act, as if all were right. Where does old K keep his money? There, answered Fetz hoarsely, pointing to the cupboard in the corner. Give me the key, then, said the other calmly, holding out his hand. There was an instant's hesitation the die was cast. McFarlane could not suppress a nervous twist, an infinitesimal mark of an immense relief as he felt the key between his fingers. He opened the cupboard, brought out pen and ink, and a paper book that stood to one compartment and separated the funds and drawer of a sum suitable to the occasion. Now look here, he said. There is the payment made, first proof of your good faith step to your security. You now have to clinch it by a second. Enter the payment in your book, and then you, for your part, may defy the devil. The next few seconds were for Fetz an agony of thought, but in balancing his terrors, it was the most immediate that triumphed. Any future difficulty seemed almost welcome if he could avoid a present quarrel with McFarlane. He set down the candle which he had been carrying all the time, and with a steady hand entered the date, the nature, and the amount of the transaction. And now, said McFarlane, it's only fair that you should pocket lucre. I've had my share already. By the by, when a man of the world falls into a bit of luck has a few shillings extra in his pocket. I'm ashamed to speak of it, but there's a rule of conduct in the case. No treating, no purchase of expensive class books, no squaring of old debts. Borrow, don't lend. McFarlane, the end fet still somewhat hoarsely. I have put my neck in halter to oblige you. To oblige me, cried Wolf. Oh, come, you did as near as I can see the matter what you downright had to do in self-defense. Suppose I got into trouble, where would you be? The second little matter flows clearly from the first. Mr. Gray is a continuation of Miss Galbraith. You can't begin and then stop. If you begin, you must keep on beginning. That's the truth. No rest for the wicked. 
A horrible sense of blackness and the treachery of fate seized hold upon the soul of the unhappy student. My God, he cried, but what have I done and when did I begin to make a class assistant in the name of reason? Where's the harm in that service? Wanted the position service must have got it. Would he have been where I am now? My dear fellow, said McFarlane, what a boy you are. What harm has come to you? What harm can come to you if you hold your tongue? Why, man, do you know what this life is? There are two squads of us, the lions and the lambs. If you're a lamb, you'll come to lie upon these tables like Grey or Jane Galbraith. If you're a lion, you'll live and drive a horse like me, like Kay, like all the world with any wit or courage. You're staggered at first, but look at Kay, my dear fellow, you're clever, you have pluck. I like you, and Kay likes you. You were born to lead the hunt, and I tell you on my honor and my experience of life, three days from now you'll laugh at all these scarecrows like a high school boy at a farce. And with that, McFarlane took his departure and drove off up the wind in his gig to get under cover before daylight. Fetz was thus left alone with his regrets. He saw the miserable peril in which he stood involved. He saw with inexpressible dismay there's no limit to his weakness and that from conscience and concession to concession he had fallen from the arbiter of McFarland's destiny to his paid and helpless accomplice he would have given the world to have been a little braver at the time but it did not occur to him that he still might be brave the secret of Jane Galbraith and the cursed entry in the daybook closed his mouth. Hours passed, the class began to arrive. The members of the unhappy Grey were dealt out to one and to another and received without remark. Richardson was made happy by the head. And before the hour of freedom rang, Fetz trembled with exultation to perceive how far they had already gone toward safety. For two days, he continued to watch, and with increasing joy, the dreadful process of disguise. On the third day, McFarlane made his appearance. He had been ill, he said, but he had made up for lost time by the energy with which he directed his students. To Richardson, in particular, he extended the most valuable assistance and advice, and that student, encouraged by the praise of the demonstrator, burned high with ambitious hopes and saw the metal already in his grasp. Before the week was out, McFarlane's prophecy had been fulfilled. Fetz had outlived his terrors and had forgotten his baseness. He began to plume himself upon his courage and had so arranged the story in his mind that he could look back on the events with an unhealthy pride. Of his accomplice, he saw but little. They met, of course, in the business of the class. They received their orders together from Mr. K. At times, they had a word or two in private, and McFarlane was from the first to last particularly kind and jovial. But it was plain that he avoided any reference to their common secret. And even when Fetz whispered to him that he had cast in his lot with the lions and forsworn the lambs, he'd only signed him smilingly to hold his peace. At length, an occasion arose which threw the pair once more into a closer union. Mr. K was again short of subjects, pupils were eager, and it was part of this teacher's pretensions to always be well supplied. At the same time, there came news of a burial in the rustic graveyard of Glen Corse. Time had little changed the place in question. It stood then, as now, upon a crossroad out of the call of human habitations and buried fathom deep in the foliage of six cedar trees. 
The cries of the sheep upon the neighboring hills and the streamlets upon either hand, one loudly singing among pebbles, the other dripping furtively from pond to pond. Stir of the wind and the mountainous old flowering chestnuts. And once in seven days, the voice of the bell in the old tombs of the presenter were the only sounds that disturbed the silence around the rural church. The resurrection man, to use the byname of the period, was not to be deterred by any of the sanctities of customary piety. It was part of his trade to despise and desecrate the scrolls and trumpets of old tombs, the paths worn by the feet of worshippers and mourners, and the offerings in inscriptions of bereaved affection. Trustic neighborhoods where love is more than commonly tenacious, where some bonds of blood or fellowship unite the entire society of a parish. The body snatcher, far from being repelled by natural respect, was attracted by the ease and safety of the task. To bodies that had been laid in earth, in joyful expectation of a far different awakening, there came a hasty, lamp-lit, terror-haunted resurrection of the spade and mattock. The coffin was forced, the cerements torn, and the melancholy relics clad in sackcloth after being rattled for hours on loose byways were at length exposed to uttermost indignities before a class of gaping boys. Somewhat as two vultures may swoop upon a dying lamb, Fetz and McFarlane were to be let loose upon a grave in that green and quiet resting place. The wife of a farmer, a woman who had lived for sixty years and had been known for nothing but good butter and a godly conversation, was to be rooted from her grave at midnight and carried dead and naked to that faraway city that she had always honored with her Sunday's best the place beside her family was to be empty till the crack of doom her innocent and almost venerable members were to be exposed to that last curiosity of the anatomist late one afternoon the pair set forth well wrapped in cloaks and furnished with formidable bottle it rained without remission a cold dense lashing rain now and again there blew a puff of wind, but these sheets of falling water kept it down. Bottle and all, it was a sad and silent drive as far as Penniquit. There they were to spend the evening. They stopped once to hide their implements in a thick bush not far from the churchyard, and once again at the fisher's tryst to have a toast before the kitchen fire and vary their nips of whiskey with a glass of ale. When they reached their journey's end, the gig was housed, the horse was fed and comforted, and the two doctors in a private room sat down to the best dinner and the best wine that the house afforded. The lights, the fire, the beating rain upon the window, the cold, incongruous work that lay before them added to their zest, to the enjoyment of the meal. And every glass their cordiality increased. Soon McFarlane handed a little pile of gold to his companion. A compliment, he said. Between friends, these little accommodations ought to fly like pipe lights. Fetz pocketed the money and applauded the sentiment to the echo. You are a philosopher, he cried. And I was an ass till I knew you, you and Kay, between you, my lord Harry, but you'll make a man of me. Of course we shall, applauded McFarlane. A man, I tell you, it required a man to back me up the other morning. There at some big, brawling, forty-year-old cowards who would have turned sick in the look of dead things, but not you. You kept your head. I watched you. Well, and why not? Fats thus vaunted himself. It was no affair of mine. There was nothing to gain. One on side, but disturbance, and on the other side, I could count on your gratitude, don't you see? And he slapped his pocket till the gold pieces rang. McFarlane somewhat felt a certain touch of alarm at these unpleasant words. 
He may have regretted that he had taught his young companion so successfully, but he had no time to interfere, for the other noisily continued in this boastful strain. The great thing is not to be afraid. Now, between you and me, I don't want to hang. That's practical. But for all can't, McFarlane, I was born with a contempt. Hell, God, devil, right, wrong, sin, crime, and all the old gallery of curiosities, they may frighten boys. But men of the world like you and me despise them. Here's to the memory of Grey. It was by this time growing somewhat late. The gig, according to order, was brought round to the door with both lamps brightly shining, and the young men had to pay their bill and take the road. They announced that they were bound for peoples and drove in that direction till they were clear of the last houses of the town. Then, extinguishing the lamps, they returned their course, followed a by-road towards Glencourse. There was no sound but that of their own passage and the incessant, strident pouring of the rain. It was pitch dark for a short space across the night, but for the most part it was at a foot pace and almost groping. They picked their way through that resonant blackness to their solemn and isolated destination. In the sunken woods that traversed the neighborhood of the burying ground, the last glimmer failed them. They became necessary to kindle a match and reilluminate one of the lanterns of the gig. Thus, under the dripping trees and environed by huge and moving shadows, they reached the scene of their unhallowed labors. They were both experienced in such affairs and powerful with the spade and they had scarce been twenty minutes at their task before they were rewarded with a dull rattle on the coffin lid. And at the same moment, MacFarlane, having heard his hand upon the stone, flung it carelessly above his head. The grave in which now stood almost to their shoulders was close enough to the edge of the plateau of the graveyard, and the gig lamp had been propped better to illuminate their labors against a tree on the immediate verge of the steep bank ascending to the stream chance had taken a sure aim with the stone then came a clang of broken glass night fell upon them sounds alternatingly dull and ringing announced the bounding of the lantern down the bank and its occasional collision with the trees a stone or two dislodged its descent rattled behind it in the profundities of the glen and then silence like night resumed its sway and they might bend their hearings to its utmost pitch but naught was to be heard except the rain now marching to the wind now steadily falling over miles of open country they were so nearly at an end of their aboard task that they judged it wisest to complete it in the dark the coffin was exhumed and broken open, the body inserted into the dripping sack and carried between them to the gig, one mounted to keep it in its place, and the other, taking the horses by the mouth, groped along the wall and bush until they reached the wider road by the fisher's tryst. Here was a faint, diffused radiancy, which they hailed like daylight, by what they pushed the horse to a good pace and began to rattle along merrily in the direction of the town. They had been wetted to the skin during their operations, and now as the gig jumped along the deep ruts, the thing that stood propped between them fell now upon one and upon the other. At every repetition of the horrid contact, each instinctively repelled it with greater haste, and the process, natural although it was, began to tell upon the nerves of the companions. McFarlane made some ill-favored jest about the farmer's wife, but it came hollowly from his lips and was allowed to drop in silence. Still, their unnatural burden bumped from side to side, and now the head would be laid as if in confidence upon their shoulders, and now the drenching sackcloth flip icily upon their faces. The creeping chill began to possess the soul of Fetz. He peered at the huddle, and it seemed somehow larger than at first. 
all over the countryside, and from every degree of distance, the farm dogs accompanied their passage with tragic ululations, and it grew and grew upon his mind that some unnatural miracle had been accomplished. That some nameless change had befallen the dead body, and that it was in fear of their unholy burden that the dogs were howling. For God's sake, for God's sake, let's have light. Seemingly, McFarlane was affected by the same direction, for though he made no reply, he stopped the horse, passed the reins to his companion, and got down and proceeded to kindle the remaining lamp. They had by that time got no further than the crossroad down to Ockleclinny. The rain still poured as though the deluge were returning, and it was no easy matter to make a light in such a world as wet and darkness. When at last the flickering blue flame had been wide, circle, misty brightness round the gig, it became possible for the two young men to see each other in the thing they had along with them. The rain had moldered the rough sacking to the outlines of the body underneath. The head was distinct from the trunk, the shoulders plainly mottled. Something at once spectral and human riveted their eyes upon the ghastly comrade of their drive. For some time, McFarlane stood motionless, holding up the lamp. A nameless dread was swathed like wet sheet about the body and tightening the white skin upon the face of Fetz. A fear that was meaningless, a horror of what could not be kept mounting to his brain. Another heat of the watch and he'd spoken, but his comrade forestalled him. That is not woman, said McFarlane in a hushed voice. It was woman when we put her in, whispered Fetz. Hold that lamp, said the other. I must see her face. And as Fetz took the lamp, his companion untied the fastenings and drew down the cover of the face. The light fell very clear upon the dark, well-moldered features and smooth-shaven cheeks, too familiar countenance, often beheld in dreams of both of these young men. A wild yell rang up into the night. Each leaped from his own side to the roadway. The lamp fell, broke, and was extinguished, and the horse, terrified by this unusual commotion, bounded and went off towards Edinburgh at a gallop, bearing along with it a sole occupant of the gig, the body of the dead, and long dissected Gray. Wittershins is created by Ashley Nunez of Old Growth Alchemy and folk musician Joe Saborin in the presence of their curious cat Django, a few too many half-drunk cups of tea, and far too many begrudgingly half-completed art projects. If you'd like to follow along Joe and his musical machinations, you can find him at Joe Saborin Music on Facebook and Instagram, or joesaborin.com. For more glimpses into the wild woods of story, botanical libations, and sensual ephemera, you can find me, Ashley, at Old Growth Alchemy on Facebook and Instagram, or at oldgrowthalchemy.com. Or you can become patrons to us both on Patreon. Until next time, friends new and old, we'll be sure to keep the kettle on with a seat open for you by the fire. <laughs>